This is Near Dark Radio. 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 Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Near Dark Radio. This is your host, John Gower. If you were expecting someone else, please find another podcast. I'm coming at you solo today. There is no one else in the room with me except a cat. A cat who is eager to get on this table. We'll see if she does. Um, our friend and my dear co-host, Laura Mayo, was not able to make it this week. That being said, she will be joining me at the Tennessee Renaissance Festival on Monday for a special patron-only episode of the show broadcast from the Renaissance Festival. As you can probably imagine, we'll be having a lot of fun making a lot of comments on a lot of ridiculous people. And you are going to have to become a Patreon, in, a Patreon patron, in order to listen to the hilarity that will ensue. And for all the, the patrons out there, we'll be dropping that episode on Tuesday. Um, since we are solo today, I wanted to get into some ideas I have for the direction of this podcast moving forward. Um, we've done a lot of different subjects. We've tackled a lot of different issues. We've had a lot of fun. And I want to continue to have fun. I would like nothing more than to entertain you all. And at the same time, educate you or expose you to interesting ideas, perspectives, smells... And, you know, I'd, so I don't want this podcast to get too serious. It did start out a little serious, um, got a little lighter in recent months, and I like, I like that. I like lightness. I like frivolity. Nietzsche, Nietzsche the patron saint of this podcast, made the distinction between unimaginative smart people and fun imaginative smart people when he coined the term the gay science. And no, he wasn't talking about the gay agenda that involves turning all of the men in Western society into homosexuals so that we might have sex with them all. That is a fiction. It does not exist. You heard it here first. No, the gay science, or die Wissenschaft, 
as he said it in German, is this notion that intellectual activities and pursuits should be done with a light heart. They should be done with light feet, on dancing feet. He made the observation that, you know, unimaginative, academic-style, humdrum intellectuals and philosophers, when they started to think, it was like it was like they were turning on a really a really heavy piece of machinery and they really had to double down and get serious to to in order to you know get get the gears turning and he preferred the more you know aesthetically oriented um playful intellectuals who were, you know, obviously concerned with the truth, obviously concerned with important and interesting ideas, but they knew how to handle them and bounce them around without getting so goddamn serious. And yes, I do think we have a problem with seriousness in America today. I mean... I mean, it's gotten to the point where musicians and comedians are taking themselves seriously. You know? You have musicians getting up on stage and talking about how, you know, they're intersexual, intersectional, intersexual. Now, that, that would be... That would be interesting. No, they talk about how their intersectional identity is so important to the music they create. And they're, you know, it's, it's really important that I consider my diverse past and the diverse cultural blanket that makes up America when I'm, you know, writing my songs but then, you know, you listen to their music and it all sounds the exact fucking same. Like shit. You have comedians. Comedians. Hopping out there and saying, you know, you know, Sarah Silverman, we talked about her last week or a couple of weeks ago. This is a woman who's put on blackface. She makes rape jokes. And now... She's, she's coming out and saying, you know what? There's some things that you just can't do or say. And it's like, honey, you're taking yourself a bit too seriously. You're a fucking comedian. You're the last person that needs to be saying there are limits to what people can do or say. Well, there obviously are limits to what people can do. But... Anyway, I would like to move forward in a playful manner. Um, one of the topics or fields of interest, one of, my, one of my fields of interest on this podcast has been pop culture and a critique 
of pop culture and the culture industry, generally speaking. Now, by pop culture, I don't mean folk culture. I don't mean like the, you know, the folk or popular music of, of, you know, the bayou in New Orleans, or I don't mean the folk music of Appalachia. I don't mean the folk music of African Americans. I mean pop in the sense of the industrialized mass-produced, mass-consumed versions of music and writing and painting and sculpture and film, television. Film and television are already in and of themselves almost intrinsically pop, but not not necessarily. You know, you have some auteurs. You have some auteurs in the film and television realm. But yeah, I would like to plunge into an ongoing critical analysis of pop culture and the culture industry. Now... I just used the word, critical analysis. My goal of critiquing the pop culture industry is not, I'm not interested in doing a Marxist-style critical analysis as, as much as some people would like me to. Um, and in fact, most of the critics of pop culture and the culture industry that I can find, that I can read, that have written on this subject, are German and French Marxists. And I am not a Marxist. So while there are valuable insights that these Marxists have, and they have interesting observations about the culture industry, I am not interested in dismantling capitalism. I am not interested in dissolving the nuclear family. I am not interested in overturning our American democracy in order to enter into some sort of socialist, communist hellscape. However, I am interested in pointing out the fact that many of many aspects of, of, of our society today resemble a hellscape. And I think a lot of this has to do with the way we produce and consume pop culture. And since I work in that industry, essentially, as a musician, I feel like it is somewhat my responsibility, but more so it's my, my lifelong interest to sort of peck at it and pick it apart. And by the end of it, I hope to separate, separate genuine culture, interesting culture, uh significant, historically significant culture from 
what we call pop culture. Because right now they're all mixed up in, with, with one another and it's hard, to, it's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff. Um, my problems, so to start off, my problems with pop culture... Why, 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 why is he going to go, why is he going after, why is he going after MTV? I like MTV, some of you are thinking. Why is he going after Disney? I like Disney, some of you are thinking. Well, here's several reasons. Pop culture has turned individuals, and by this I mean the uh, performer's what, is, what are commonly known as artists, in heavy, bold, scare quotes there, the movie stars, the musicians, the athletes, etc. Pop culture has turned these people into these supernatural entities. We, you know, to take an example, in old Hollywood, you had what were known as movie stars. And you saw them in movies. Now, outside of movies, where they played a character that was not them, you didn't really see these people much. You know? You might get a, you know, a tabloid headline or um, you might get a, a, a picture of them on the red carpet. I'm not even sure. But you didn't have, for example, this vat, like... What we have now, which is that Robert De Niro, to take an example, or, you know, I'm just picking random fucking movie stars. These aren't even people that I have any particular interest in. The movie stars of today have become personal entities. Like, we feel like we know who uh, Renee Zellweger is. I'm picking very bad examples because these aren't even very front-facing movie stars. I'm trying to think. Alyssa Milano. Let's take Alyssa Milano. This fucking winch. This woman, her fans feel like they know her. They feel like they know who... Alyssa Milano is, when in reality, they have no idea who Alyssa Milano is. Alyssa Milano has a life, an inner life, and a personal life, and a life that she lives within her weird little Hollywood community. She has a life that none of us ever see, but we see so much of her acting as just an quote-unquote ordinary person that we've turned this idea of her, this, this spectacle um, avatar of Alyssa Milano into what we think Alyssa Milano is. And in that sense, the pop culture industry in which she works and is, you know an avatar, is lying to us. In the old Hollywood, 
of yesteryears, Hollywood was, of course, lying to us in the sense that they, the, the actor on the screen was not the character they were playing. They were, they were playing a character. And in that sense, yes, they were lying to you, just the same as a theater actor is lying to you. Othello, the person playing Othello is not Othello. This is, this is simple, simple concept to grasp. Maybe I'm going too deeply into it. But now we have musicians, we have movie stars, we have journalists, we have uh, politicians, we have all of these people developing this, this deep and quote-unquote realistic mythology surrounding most aspects of their personal lives. And this is dangerous, because not only is it a lie, but it's a lie that ordinary, average people start comparing themselves to. Okay? People start comparing themselves to Robert De Niro. People start comparing themselves to Brittany Spears. People start comparing themselves to Nancy Pelosi? I mean, I hope people don't do that, that last one, but I'm sure there are people who do. And this is a problem. It's causing a lot of problems, and I'd like to get into those over the course of the next few months. Um, second reason. Second reason I have a problem with pop culture is that it's been completely overtaken by the consumerist economic model. And this, in distinction to historical capitalism, I think a lot of people get confused they, when they say, you know, capitalism has a lot of problems, and I know that because I'm alive right now and I see a lot of problems. Um, a lot of the problems we see today are not because of what we call capitalism. They're, they're, they're problems that are caused by the consumerist economic model, which is different from capitalism in that this consumer model views individuals as nothing more than producers and consumers. They are either working to produce consumable items or they are spending money in order to consume those items. Whereas historical capitalism views individuals as free agents who conduct themselves as they see fit in the commercial landscape. Now, the, you, 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 the, capitalism has its problems, fine, sure. But the consumerist model is what has really reigned in America since the early 20th century. And what it's done to culture and pop culture is that it's reduced culture to something that 
it, that, that should be consumed rather than appreciated or even grappled with. Um, an example would be like, you know, a piece of genuine culture is something like St. Peter's Basilica. The, the, the headquarters, the church in Rome of the, of the, of the Catholic church. St. Peter's Basilica is not meant to be consumed. And you, you walk in and you have to appreciate it or grapple with it. You know, if you're one of these people that's uh, disgusted by the amount of wealth and opulence that the Catholic Church has in its coffers, then you would, you would probably have to grapple with the extraordinary beauty of this cathedral, this basilica. It's not something you can consume. Although, I will say this, uh, modern people are now trying their damnedest to consume it. And by that, I mean they go in there with their smartphones and they start taking pictures. Instead of walking into this room and experiencing awe in the face of God, these people walk in and, and start looking at corners of the room through their little black mirror and snapping, snapping little pictures because then those, those pictures are theirs. They get to take those home. They get to show their friends. They get to keep those forever, ostensibly. And so they're trying to consume little pieces of this thing rather than just experience it as an aesthetic and spiritual experience. That's two. Third... Third reason for this critique of pop culture is that um, it seems to have taken over nearly every other aspect of society. Politics, economics, the, the food industry, the transportation industry, academia, sex. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of aspects of, you know, just general features of society that have not been taken over by the pop culture, consumer industry, uh, culture industry. And the only things coming to mind are pissing and shitting. Like, I don't think pissing and shitting are very heavily influenced by the culture industry, although they may get sucked into that pretty soon. I don't know. I feel like they're a little bit taboo still to become mainstream. Maybe, maybe, maybe also you could add pedophilia to that list. Pedophilia and the way pedophiles practice pedophilia has not been 
you know, taken over by the culture industry. Not really. I don't think Disney, I don't think there's any Disneyfication going on in the uh, child sex trafficking market. No, it's still pretty, uh, what, what you see is what you probably get if you're, if you're uh, dealing in those markets. But every other aspect of society has become sort of plastic. It's, it's become uh, plastic. It's become Disneyfied. It's become uh, shallow, hollow, image-oriented. You know, I mean, you look at politics, the Democrats and the Republicans, at least the, you know, the, the mainstream Democrats and Republicans, the big, the big, the big movers and shakers in those parties really don't have that different of goals. They both want to maintain uh, international diplomatic ties. They both want to maintain uh, international trade routes. They both want to maintain uh, control and order here in America. They may have different ideas of how to do that, <clears throat> but ultimately neither of them want a revolution. That's for goddamn sure. Um, and so in, in, in that sense, you know, in a very fundamental sense, they are both playing the same game and they are both on the same side. However, what is presented to us the pop culture version is that Democrats are at war with Republicans and Republicans are at war with the Democrats. And they plan on, you know, destroying each other. And all that does is get, get us, the civilian population, all riled up and, uh, and divided amongst ourselves while those motherfuckers walk into the same room every day and sit down behind closed doors and, you know, say things like, well, well, Mitch, you know, I can't really do that for you. We're going to have to compromise on this one because my constituents, they just won't go for that. So we'll have to find another compromise. And Mitch is like, well, yeah, I guess we'll have to find another compromise and we'll have to compromise on this, too. You know, these... Uh these tariffs just aren't going to work for my constituency. And then they, you know, they start making out and the, the, the child blood starts flowing and they drink up and they're, they're, they're younger. They're 10 years younger at the end of it. And then they come out and, and, and talk about how mad they are at each other. But yeah, so, you know, there's everything, everything has become this, this image-based spectacle and it's really rotting it's really rotting it's really rotting our society uh finally this last last reason i'd like to do a deep dive on popular culture is because it's become a new religion pop culture has become a religion it is a secular religion um, it doesn't believe in an afterlife. It doesn't have any, uh, it doesn't have a principle of redemption. So it's like a religion, but with, without any of the good aspects. 
you can't expect to go to heaven and, and get, you know, 70 virgins when you die. Nor can you expect to be forgiven for your sins. But everything else about it, it has the same cultish quality that traditional religions have always had. And this aspect of pop culture, I can get, like, this is a good example. Wokeism is an aspect of American pop culture that shares this religious quality. There have been plenty of commentators. Um, the one that comes to mind right now is uh, John McWhorter, who have described wokeism as a religion, full stop. It's got its own set of beliefs. It's got its own set of practices. Um, it's, it's got, uh, you know, the idea of original sin built in, which is either, you know, depending on what, what field of wokeism you're coming from, it's either, you know, there's, there's the original sin of being part of the patriarchy, or there's the original sin of racism, or there's the original sin of some sort of bigotry. There's some sort of bigotry that everybody's born with, and they don't have any means of washing it away. There's no way to be forgiven for it. You just have to continually do the work. So you're caught in this, you know, this hamster wheel of platitudes and saying the right things and critical self-analysis. And when you, when you really think about it, it sounds like something the Catholic Church used to do to its constituents. Now, on the surface, wokeism appears, so this surface would be the pop culture facade, it appears to be a set of historical principles or critical observations, you know, academic stuff that... Um, when you, when you adopt them, you turn into an annoying little bitch who wants to lecture everybody about how everything is problematic. Literally everything. Ice cream. Tennis shoes. Sodomy. Everything. Everything is problematic to these people. Um, but this is the facade. And it is a purely performative facade. Now, that's not to say that everyone who describes themselves as woke is just um, being performative. I know people who genuinely uh, are wrapped up in these principles, just like, you know, most people that are Catholics are genuinely believe what they believe and have the best intentions and are you know, doing it for the right reasons. But the elite, the elite, or as John McWhorter calls them, the elect, love that term. Thank you, John. Um, he, he's, it's the elite who are performing. It is the elite who are 
stepping out onto the national stage, the public stage, the pop culture balcony on which all Americans can watch them, and they put on a performance. And I think this points to a way that we can start to rethink or reimagine or become more responsible with pop culture as a whole. A good first start. We can stop calling people like Katy Perry or Lil Nas X. We can stop calling them artists and start referring to them as what they actually are, which is performers. And uh, similarly, we can stop referring to the members of the woke elite, like Nicole Hannah-Jones, as quote-unquote journalists or activists. And we can start calling them what they are, which is performers on the stage of the culture industry. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that pop stars like Michael Jackson or activists like Nicole Hannah-Jones don't have the best of intentions, although there are things that they have said, and in Michael Jackson's case, done, that are enough to give pause. Um, But no, I'm just suggesting that they are, in fact, performers. They have been selected by the elites in the music industry and the elites in the corporate media establishment to perform a certain role for the rest of America. I mean, Michael Jackson, case in point. Anyone who thinks that Michael Jackson was just some magical musical genius who shared his talents selflessly with the rest of the world is, you're a first-rate retard if you think that. You only have to look at him at his uh, his biographies, which you know I'm reading one of those right now. He it describes him as a man tortured to the very bottom of his soul by fame. They describe a man whose entire childhood was taken away from him by this this ruthless music industry that literally worked him to death. Why do you think this guy was taking so many drug cocktails when he he finally overdosed on them? It was not because he was happy or, or fulfilled by his success, which is, which is usually the case when an artist achieves something great in their lives. No, it was because he'd been hollowed out by the entertainment industry, by the culture industry. It was because he, his life, he'd lived his entire fucking life as a hollow image designed specifically for mass consumption in order to make a profit. 
let's okay, but let's turn to Nicole Hannah Jones because you know that's that's not an uncommon no, it's not uncommon knowledge that pop stars like Michael Jackson or uh, you know movie stars it's not it's 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 not unfamiliar to most people that these that these people are probably a little tortured that these people live in a sort of cage these people can't necessarily say what they think these people can't necessarily do what they want they can't even uh make the music or play the roles that they want they're caught up in an industrial machine. And that is something that I want to really want to bring to light through all of this is that for some reason, when people say, you know, the music industry or the film industry, they don't understand they, they, the definition of the word industry seems somehow different than it does when you say, you know, the coal industry or the natural gas industry or the transportation industry. When you say that, when you say the, the transportation industry, it immediately comes to mind that there is a lot of machinery, there's a lot of factories, there's a lot of um, very, very programmatic, systematic processes that go into this to make it work. And that everything has to work a certain way, and that that certain way is designed by the people at the top, so that so that you know the train runs the way it's supposed to run. When you say the music industry or the film industry, the vast majority of people don't seem don't understand that. The word industry has the same implications here. They don't understand that the film industry, for example, is, is a set of very specific, specifically designed technologies and practices and uh, behavioral patterns that are all directed from above by studio executives and the people that put the money into those studios, and that these this industry is designed to turn out profitable films. It's not designed to turn out, you know, um, moving, earth-shattering works of art, although sometimes it messes up and does. No, for the, the, the vast majority of films that, are, that come out of Hollywood or the film industry, since it's sort of dislocated from Hollywood, these are designed for commercial consumption, mass commercial consumption, in the widest possible market in order to acquire the maximum profit. So yeah, your, your famous actors, your famous actresses, they're not, <clears throat> excuse me, they're not getting to, they're, they're not necessarily in there going, ah, I'm just practicing my craft. I'm just practicing the craft that I've always wanted to practice since I was seven and living in Wichita, Kansas. I assume that's how 
actors talk to each other. But no, yeah, they're 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 selected based on criteria that is based on market value, and the industry runs a certain way. Same as the music industry. Um, but let's turn to the journalistic industry, the industry of journalism, because it is also an industry and it has its actors, what we call journalists, which again, most of them we should call performers. Um, I mentioned Nicole Hannah-Jones earlier. Because she is an interesting figure. She authored, um, if you don't know who she is, she wrote the New York Times 1619 Project, which I believe we mentioned on this on this show a few months ago. That was not the sound of me lighting a cigarette, Mom. Um, and the 1619 Project came under fire from historians all across the country, all across the political spectrum for cherry-picking historical data in order to suggest that the United States was not in fact founded in 1776, but was actually founded when the first slaves arrived here in 1619. And it goes further and, and makes the uh, dubious assertion that the Revolutionary War was fought to preserve the institution of American slavery. This point, historians particularly took, uh, took issue with because, one, we were fighting the British, and the British at the time were certainly not anti-slavery, and the people fighting on the side of the Americans were actually very divided about the issue of slavery and whether it was an institution that uh, was going to continue. Anyway, not going to get too far into the weeds here. Um, but yeah, so the historians came after this article. And this may sound like, you know, on the surface, on the pop culture, the glittering, glittering pop culture surface, this might sound like a typical right-left divide to some of you. The left props up this 1619 project, a story of how racism is the original sin of America. And then the right, in the form of historians, gets up and objects very loudly to this. Ah, we're not racist. We're, we're a great nation. But this is not a, a, a typical left-right divide. The historians who objected to this piece were not uniformly conservative, and even more interesting, the piece came under vicious attack from very prominent socialist outlets. And this was not because of its historical inaccuracy, but because it ignores the um, class differences and economic inequalities that the American left has, has historically taken as the primary features in, in, in the leftist critique of American society. In their minds, the 1619 Project is focused on race, and it promotes a, a racial division 
within the working class. While the working class is a class that socialists would like to see united. Workers of the world unite. Um, Catherine Liu? I don't know how to pronounce her last name. It's L-I-U. Catherine Liu has a very interesting article over in Quillette, um, an independent, nonpartisan um, journalistic outlet based, I think, out of Australia on this subject. And I'll link to that in the show notes. But this is this is the the issue that she's um, that she's interested in in this article. This uh, the leftist critique of uh, the 1619 project, and one could extend it further: the woke movement in general. <laughs> I quote from her article. The 1619 Project ignores historical and economic conditions that might make slavery comparable to other forms of exploitation. Chattel slavery and serfdom being two pre-modern examples, and the wage slavery of industrial capitalism being another. In doing so, it furthers a cherished liberal rallying cry of our time, that interracial solidarity among the working class is simply impossible. Better not even to try to establish a universalist critique of capitalism. End quote. Uh, now, obviously there, or maybe not obviously, she is coming at the 1619 Project from a traditionally Marxist, anti-capitalist perspective, which I do not share with her, like I said, earlier. But it's interesting to note that me, uh, someone that considers myself, if not a capitalist, at least an admirer of the ideas and theory behind capitalism, and someone who abhors Marxism, I can totally agree with her assessment here. She makes, she's making the case, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll quote here, another quote. Quote, the project is, on top of everything, a bold attempt to eliminate historical materialism, uh, that's the Marxist materialist approach to history that I mentioned earlier, from, uh, it seeks to eliminate historical materialism from the teaching and writing of American history while destroying the possibility of solidarity in the American working class. So essentially her argument is that the the elites at the New York Times, this piece was this published by the New York Times and funded by the, uh, the Pulitzer organization. These elites are promoting racial divisions within the working class. Um, in her opinion, either because they're actively trying to prevent the working class from organizing, because that would threaten the, the, the position of the elites, or... And I think this is the more probable case. The elites have become so detached from reality, uh, so far removed from the working class itself and the problems of the working class, and they've become so 
intoxicated by their own theories of meritocracy and social mobility that they really can't see how the vast wealth inequalities in America are much more profound uh, and much more fundamental than the racial equalities in America. She goes on. She goes on. Quote, Liberals, and you could read that elites, have abandoned history because they have to believe that they are superior to both elites of the past and the contemporary working class at the same time. It is hard to argue with them because they do not accept debate as a meaningful form of the advancement of knowledge. For them, every conflict is moral, not intellectual or political. Now that, I thought, was a very, very, very interesting sentence. For them, every conflict is moral, not intellectual or political. And this, she, I guess she's making the case here that this is why it is so difficult to argue with elites, especially elites that are sort of center-left. Elites that have you know, embrace political correctness, they've embraced wokeism, they've embraced, which, you know, I'll get to this, wokeness is not a feature of the radical left. Wokeness is a feature of central, centrist corporatist left. Um, but that's why you can't argue with these people, because they view everything as a moral issue. If you disagree with them, it's not an intellectual matter. It's not something you can, uh, you can sit down and discuss and try to uh, win each other over on. It is a moral defect that you have. Your disagreement means that you are morally culpable of some sin. And that is one reason, among many, that it's very hard to have political and social discourse in America today. And this is, so going back to, you know, I, I, the, the, the sort of issue of where wokeness lands on the political spectrum, I can't really accept the, um, the sort of mainstream conservative critique of wokeism that it's a radical leftist philosophy the truly radical left, um, for all of its Marxist materialistic flaws, the radical left is at least willing to honestly look at wokeism and racial identity politics as a cynical tool of the professional managerial elite, the, the PMC, the professional managerial class. Uh, the same people, the same people who run the New York Times, the same people who run CNN, the same people who run Disney, Coca-Cola, uh, Nike, countless other multinational corporations, are, uh, through ignorance or perhaps malice, they're they're spreading wokeism. These, these multinational corporations are spreading and promoting wokeism either 
through the media, if they're media outlets, or through their company's corporate structure, if they're Coca-Cola or Disney, these corporate structures are spreading wokeism in the very institutions that wokeism claims, claims, to want to critique. And in the meantime, you have working-class blacks, working-class whites, working-class Hispanics, working-class who the fuck ever, because no one really cares once you get that poor. Uh, when, you're, when you're clocking in at the factory every day, you're not really thinking about your skin color all that much. Uh, their situation just grows increasingly more precarious. And the woke, the so-called woke movement is just amounts to nothing but empty platitudes to these people. Yeah, so all that, all that is to say that I'm kind of done talking about wokeism in any really substantial way on this podcast. I know we've done it. I mean, we haven't we haven't dedicated like entire episodes to it, or at least I haven't meant to. And I'm sure it'll come up again in different contexts, but it just seems empty and shallow and not something really of substance that I want to discuss. I want to discuss things of substance, like pop culture. And when I do bring up wokeness, I want people to understand that I'm not referring to some radical leftist ideology. I'm talking about a corporatist, divisive, deconstructionist ideology that was, it was born in the highest echelons of academia, i.e. in elite circles. It was quickly exported to the uh, highest echelons of corporate America, and the highest echelons of the Democratic Party. And my impression is, if, if it was truly a radical leftist ideology, a, a truly substantial political movement that was challenging the status quo, uh, something tells me it would not have gone mainstream so quickly or so easily. So, Pop culture, this is something I'd really like to dig deeper into because I don't see a way forward from our uh, bleak political hellscape that doesn't involve a fundamental shift in the way we uh, consume pop culture and the products of the culture industry. Now, let me be clear here at the outset. I do not suggest that we, you know, do away with lighthearted entertainment. It's, you know, a sitcom or a pop song or a little titty bar show can be quite nice. It can be quite enjoyable. And, <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. The vast majority of Americans are far too retarded to appreciate the works of Schiller or Chopin or James Baldwin. Uh, they're they're going to need they're going to need 
They're going to need their Kardashians. They're going to need their Katy Perry. But I do think it's important that a significant portion of the American population, I don't know what that proportion would be. Um, Let's say the American population needs to reach herd immunity against pop culture. They need to wake up to the fact that their entertainment is being crafted, crafted by international corporate industries. Industries who have a vested interest in making money, in turning a profit, in monopolizing markets, and in keeping people confused or even ignorant about the real political issues that, that, that concern us, you know? And maybe, 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 if Disney were speaking out more about the problems of, you know, offshoring American industries or international child sex trafficking rings or the, you know, the, the various different drug epidemics sweeping through our country, if Disney was speaking out about these problems, maybe I'd have a better opinion of their products. Probably not, but let's just say maybe. Let's just say maybe. Um, before I go, before we disconnect for the day, I did want to touch on a little a little bit of a little bit of news a little person who's in the news a little person whose name is Milo Ianopoulos um, if you're not familiar with Milo Ianopoulos you don't necessarily need to be he was a conservative I guess you'd call him an edge lord um he was a, like a political clown. He was known for um, like like a, a very clownishly gay appearance, um, bleach blonde hair, uh, big pearl necklace, <clears throat> designer suits, um, very effeminate affectations. But he was a hardcore conservative. And he was, you know, he would make nasty jokes about lesbians, which I thought was funny. Um, But he recently came out in an interview as ex-gay. He's claiming that his gay persona, the persona that we all knew and loved, was just a persona. A persona that he thought would drive liberals crazy. Because at the time, this was like, I think he came on the scene in like 2014, 2015. In the, it, was, it was really in the lead up to uh, Trump's uh, presidential campaign. Because he was a big Trump supporter. And that's really how he made his, his, uh, made his splash. But at that time, liberals were not accustomed 
to seeing a flamboyant homosexual embracing very traditional conservative practices or uh, ideas. And Milo has now come out and is claiming that he is no longer gay. He has learned the error of his ways, and he said that he will be demoting his husband. He's married. He's married to a man. He will be demoting his husband to the role of housemate. Now, I'm wondering how Milo plans to live with a guy that he once fucked and was married to without succumbing to uh, the temptation to resume fucking him. But, you know, I, I really don't know what's going on here. Um, in keeping with this, this lifestyle change that Milo has decided to develop or go through, he's also decided to, quote-unquote, rehabilitate the practice of gay conversion therapy, which we joked about a little uh, a couple of weeks ago on the Sarah Silverman episode. Um, and now a gay conservative British fellow is coming out in favor of gay conversion therapy and is apparently crowdsourcing in order to fund his own gay conversion therapy clinic. Now, there's, uh, there's not very much on that, so I'm not sure, you know... Tim Dillon brought this to my attention uh, on one of his recent episodes, and he he really pointed out he 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 called Milo out for what he is. He's a fucking grifter. He's a fucking clown, shock jock, uh, you know, controversial figure who's built a career off of offending people and pushing their buttons. And so he got as far as he could being a gay conservative. And I guess now he's, you know, now he's got to flip a new script, piss off a new group of people, and jump into the gay conversion therapy game. Again, Mom, that was not me lighting a cigarette. I just had to take a very deep breath. Um, you know, and call it what you will. I, I don't, I don't believe gay conversion therapy works. I uh, feel very sorry for men who are still in the closet. I feel, I feel terrible and I'm actually a little bit scared of men who refuse to come out of the closet, uh, even though they know, you know, they know. They know, they know what the heart wants, what the heart wants. They know. And they have to live with that every fucking day. Seeing a hot dude walking down the street and starting, you know, mentally slapping themselves in the face, throwing cold water on their crotch. That's got to be psychologically destructive. 
So I feel bad for these people. But, and this is where I'm going to step into a little bit of shit before I really jump into the pile, I am pro-choice. I am pro-choice. I do not think that abortion is a good thing. I do not think abortion is healthy. I do not think it is uh, psychologically um, helpful to women who have it done. But I do not, under any circumstances, well, let me qualify that. I do not think the practice of abortion should be illegal. Now, I'm not interested in in seeing women aborting fetuses or babies, you know, two weeks before they're due. We gotta, you got to draw a line somewhere. But I am pro-choice. Now, in that same vein, I am pro-choice about gay conversion therapy. I do not think it's healthy. I do not think it works. But if you want to do it, <clears throat> if you want to try it, you should be able to do it. You should be able to try it. There should be clinics that you are able to get. If somebody wants to start a gay conversion therapy clinic, <clears throat> I don't know what that business proposal looks like. I don't know where you start there. I don't know what, what sort of employees you have to try to fucking start hiring at a place like that. Certainly not attractive young men. But if you want to start that business, go ahead. Go ahead. It's a free market. No one's going to be forcing gays onto trains and shipping them off to these facilities. Let's not hope that's the case anyway. If, that, if, that, if, if things change, if the political climate changes in the next few years and that becomes a distinct possibility, I will correct myself. But right now, it's literally, it's, it's literally, no, it's not even as, what am I trying to, what am I trying to say here? It's, it's a choice. It's a choice you're able to make in our modern hellscape of a society. So go for it. Um, and Milo, you know, if Milo wants to open his own conversion therapy clinic, just, just ignore him. My, my, my concern is that all of these uh, performative journalists are going to jump on Twitter and start screaming about Milo Yiannopoulos's uh, conversion therapy clinic, which is going to give it publicity. And it's going to make him money. And Milo Yiannopoulos doesn't need to make any money. He's fine. He needs to actually get a real job. <laughs> um, anyway, I bring this up I, I, because I, I kind of got into Milo back in probably in 2016. It was, like, it was leading up to the presidential election when I first came across him. And I found him interesting, not because he was a Trump supporter, um, who he always referred to as daddy, which was 
probably too kitsch even for Trump. Um, but no, I was interested in him because he was the first gay man that I'd heard get up on a national public platform and break with the with the party line that the gay community is supposed to toe. He would get up and, you know, rail against abortion. He would rail against gun control policy. He would rail against the fact that lesbians have no aesthetic sensibilities and eat too much pizza. Um, And I was not the only gay man in America to be drawn to his sort of defiant brand. And he even made that, um, he even made that defiance into a shtick that he would talk about. He would talk about how the gay community used to be counterculture. It used to be underground. It used to be shock and awe. It used to be provocative. And now, the gay community is all toe in the Democratic Party line. They're all, they've all embraced PC culture. They're all building little houses with picket fences and trying to act normal. And a lot of gays, like myself, gays who were, who were getting more and more pushback for saying provocative or subversive things, And a lot of these gays who were sick of getting this pushback for being provocative and subversive, which is what gays had been until yesterday, uh, we, we were all enthralled by him. I realized he was a huckster pretty early on and stopped listening to him, but there was a brief period where I was like, yeah, yeah, he's funny. He's funny. I don't agree with his politics on a lot of things, but he's funny. Anyway, um, if you're around next week and you're really craving more of more near dark radio, if you're craving some full dark radio, you want to get behind that paywall. You want to hear the episodes that are only available to the premium to the premium listeners, the listeners who are able to shell out a little cash, a little Venmo, a little Bitcoin, you need to go over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash neardarkradio and become a fucking subscriber. Become a supporter. NPR does, does drives. They do drives. They do drives every fucking month, every fucking two months, I don't know. And they ask you for money. They ask you for money because it costs money to produce shows. I am doing the same. Costs a little bit of money. Costs a little bit of time to put on this show. And I'd like to be able to sustain it. So get on over there to Patreon. And when you sign up, you'll be able to listen to all of the bonus episodes so far. You'll be able to listen to full-length episodes of some of the uh, 
some of the free episodes that I edited down. I edited out some of the some of the meat, some of the some of the juice. Squeezed out some of the juice because y'all don't deserve that juice. You freeloaders. You deserve the free ones and nothing else. But get on over there to Patreon. You'll be able to hear next week's patron-only episode where we record live. We record live from the Renaissance Festival. Anyway, thank y'all for listening. Love ya. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. And we'll see you next week. Good night. Good night.